So here we are again for another uh, death anniversary, uh, coming together, recollecting with gratitude, with appreciation, uh, on this occasion for Sushila, who passed away nine years ago. And uh, there's something about the the regularity of this which I, I really appreciate. I really think there's an innate wisdom in, in these traditions we have in Buddhism of doing these uh, occasions of getting together and remembering like this each year. So, okay, this year because of the snow, you're all a, a week or two late. <laughs> but uh, are we a week late? Is it two weeks late? One week late. Yeah. But um, this time of year, every year we get together and and then, of course, there are other occasions where we, you know, like on the, the, the death of the Buddha, likewise, the full moon of May, we get together and we recollect. And, and uh, finding a way of bringing up the uh, recollection of death in a positive way <coughs> is, is a tremendously wise and skillful thing to do. You see, so much in, in society um, is about the avoidance of this issue. And yet, as we all know, the one thing that's guaranteed when you're born, I don't think you can mention anything else, but the one thing is you're going to die. You know, we, we all know this. I mean, how happy we're going to be, or how sad we're going to be, or how wealthy, or how good-looking, or, or otherwise we're going to be. None of that is guaranteed. That's all up to uncertainty. But the one thing that is guaranteed is we're going to die. And yet, uh, we spend so much effort trying to avoid this fact. And... The Buddha recognized this and so he held it up as something to really reflect on regularly and, and, and bring it into consciousness. And so to bring it into consciousness, not in a depressed way of getting together and feeling morbid, um, like also yesterday was the occasion for uh, re- remembering Ajahn Chah's passing away. And so there's, uh, what is it, 3,700 people at Wat uh, Pa at the moment. Uh, that's without the Sangha, that's the lay people who are all there. Every year they get together, thousands and thousands of them come together. And they don't wail and gnash teeth and say how terrible it all was. They get together and sit meditation and listen to Dhamma talks and make offerings and have a good time, actually. Uh, they enjoy the time of being together and reflecting, uh, creating a positive attitude and at the same time bringing to awareness the sense of loss and and in this way, what we're doing as Buddhists is, is, is dealing with that tendency we have to avoid the inevitable sense of loss. The pain around loss is <coughs> undeniable. When we lose somebody we love, or something passes away, or at the moment the, the, uh, the earthquake and... How do you pronounce it? Haiti. Haiti. Yeah, was it 100,000 people have been killed, or maybe more? You know, or a fire, or you know. the sense of loss. There's no no doubt about it. We feel bad, no doubt about it. That's natural. That's understandable. But how do we deal with this in a conscious, skillful way? The Buddha wasn't saying, you know, you can set yourself up so you don't feel bad about anything. And even the Buddha had the experience of loss, didn't he? When he talks about the sense of loss when his disciples died, and and when he was disappointed and with the way his monks behaved, and there's a perception of of loss, but how do we deal with it in a skillful way? In other words, how are we mindful of it? And so 
This is one of the ways that we as Buddhists do it. We set an occasion aside like this and come and make offerings and create a positive atmosphere and, and then remember and recollect. And when, in so doing, what happens is we don't push the whole subject of death into unawareness. When we push the fact of death into unawareness, what happens is we're afraid of it. You know, we have this lingering fear you know, that um, one day we're going to die. Well, the Buddha said, well, don't, no, don't do that. He said, bring it up and just say, well, we're going to die. Yeah. doesn't mean to say we're, going to, we're looking forward to it. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say we want to it. doesn't mean to say we, we, we're not going to feel bad about losing loved ones. So. But finding a way of actually uh, accommodating it finding a way of accommodating it. Again, the Buddha never said that even when you get enlightened, you're not going to experience pain. He himself experienced pain. Uh, but what he did say is that when there's wisdom, when there's clear seeing, when there's right understanding, then the pain of our life is manageable. We can accommodate it. We can accommodate the pain and we can accommodate the pleasure. We don't get lost in the pleasure, or well, it's less likely of getting lost in the pleasure and then we won't get lost in the pain. So by coming together like this and reflecting on death mindfully and also doing it regularly in a way that this regularity of it, it, it creates a certain sort of pattern in our lives which I think is very skillful. The, the, the regularity of, of taking the precepts, the regularity of of uh, observing Waysak, the regularity of the chanting. You don't come here and suddenly we've changed the chanting, we're doing it in sort of a, a reggae style or something. You know, the, the pritas, oh, what is it, putting a donk on it? Is that what you, what? you, you know a donk is? <laughs> so anyway, the modern music, I mean, if we don't retranslate the pritas, we, we do the pritas in a predictable way. And we don't change our robes. We don't, you know, suddenly you know, turn out in, in kind of green robes. I mean, the, the Buddha set it up, we're not allowed to change these things, you're not allowed to change the rules, you're not allowed to change the, the teachings, you're not allowed to change the robes. Because I think uh, partly behind that was the, the wisdom that recognises that with all the obvious uncertainty and irregularity of our lives, well, you could call the chaos, the obvious chaos, however you interpret that term. The obvious chaos of existence needs to be seen in relation to the form, the inherent form that, there are there, that is there, the inherent truths that are there in, in existence. And so for us to have ways to symbolize this truth, you know, like we come here, we bow three times, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we don't say, oh well we've had a meeting, we decide we're only going to bow twice. Now, and uh, we don't believe in the Sangha anymore, we'll throw that out because we're all equal and we don't like Sangha, we just have Buddha and Dhamma. Well, some people don't even like the Buddha, they won't even throw the Buddha out and say, well, we're just going to have the Dhamma. They know that we have the three refuges the Buddha set up and we bow three times, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And so we have these symbols, we have these rituals which reflect something terribly important, is the fact that there is order within chaos, that there is form that there is truth, that it's not just the case that everything is uncertain. It is the case that everything is uncertain. But it's not just the case that everything is uncertain. Even within uncertainty, there is certainty. I remember once I was 
giving a talk at a school and very bright children it was a Roman Catholic school and they were all terribly well behaved and, and I thought well I would give them a talk on impermanence because this is uh, you know, a pretty important you know, kind of like bottom line with Buddhist teachings you know. what are we going to teach these kids well teach them about impermanence and so I said can anybody think of anything that isn't impermanent anything that doesn't change and one smart kid put his arm up and said the law of impermanence oh, <laughs> that's good <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Obviously, a very good school. <laughs> well, this is true. This is this is what the Buddha. This is why the Buddha. This is, he said. This is Dhamma, because Dhamma doesn't change. Dhamma is reliable. Dhamma is dependable. But if we don't know Dhamma, or if we don't even have a, a conceptual understanding of Dhamma, you know, then we can get lost in the uncertainty. The uncertainty is undeniable. The uncertainty is all around us. That. Earthquake in Haiti. Yeah. When, how long ago was it? There was the the uh, tsunami and uh, all over Southeast Asia, South Asia, and, and the floods there are around. I mean, uh, aging. You, know. you probably heard me all creaking and groaning as I was getting down <laughs> today at the meal. Sorry about that. I don't intend to make a habit of it. But that's what happens. There's no. We're not spring chickens here anymore. One. <laughs> One spring chicken. With respect, <laughs> you know, we're all getting older, and you know, and what's the future hold? There's a sense of uncertainty. We don't know when, we don't know where, and that can be very unsettling. But they said, but they said, well, there is actually something that can give you a sense of settling. It's called dhamma. You know, you pay attention to it. It doesn't mean it doesn't take away the unsettledness. It doesn't take away the unpredictability. It doesn't take away the chaos. It doesn't take away the insecurity. But it gives another perspective on it, and and if we again, if we don't have this, then we'll see, in a real way we'll seek it out in a false way, and so you'll see what goes on in, in the world. Most of what goes on in religion, in fact, a lot of the uh, stories that are put across, even in Buddhism, a lot of the stories that get associated with the Buddha's teachings are are not real dhamma, but they're conciliatory messages that make us feel good. Because we don't want to face the fact, which is we're going to lose everything from one perspective. From the perspective of condition, me, ego, personality, we will eventually one day lose everything. We don't like the thought of that. So if we don't have the Buddha's teachings to turn to Dhamma, then what we do is we invent stories and distractions. And so, well, with technology now, I mean, the distractions are phenomenal. Uh, the... Uh, the ability that we have in our society, we want to, absolutely. I don't think, I'm sure all old people always say this, it's like, it's never been like this before, but I'm sure in our case it's true. It's never been like this before. The opportunities for such a mass of humanity to become so easily distracted, it's phenomenal. Right? That uh, everybody has gadgets, even in, in the poor countries in the world, people have gadgets to distract themselves with. And I think probably young people, even more so than ever throughout all human history, are more readily distracted from what's really going on here and now in this moment uh, because of, of uh, all the gadgets, the technology. And technology enhances, in fact, enhances the life of young people, you know, the, the youth culture. Probably many of you are like me, that you just can't get your head around a lot of the gadgets. You, 
even working a phone or and and use as held up as something really truly wonderful. Well, the Buddha actually says you've got to be very careful about youth. Well, youth is part of the truth. Youth is part of the truth. You get born, you're young, and then you get old and you die. But in our society, we focus on youth and youth culture, youth clothes, youth music, youth television. Mm. There's emphasis on youth or wealth. Likewise, people are very easily distract themselves with making money. Is money an ultimate truth? It's nice to have money. I mean, you know, if you don't have money to pay the bills, well, that's really sad. I mean, when winter comes along and you can't pay the bills, and there are a lot of people are now in society who don't have enough money to pay the bills, and they're cold, and that's not fun. And when our gas ran out the other day, and the tanker couldn't make it up the hill, you felt a little threatened, you know. I think, well, this is what it's like for a lot of people in the world. They feel cold like this. Well, at least we still got a few bottles of gas and it wasn't too bad. And I knew that when the gas tanker could come up, well, the monastery trustees could pay the bill. But if you don't have money, well, it's really difficult. And, and yet, even if you do have money, it's not, it's not going to make us secure. You know, so the Buddha said, youth is fine. It's got its advantages. You can do a lot of things. You've got a lot of energy. Your intelligence is pristine. and New ideas, creativity. It's great. But don't forget impermanence. Yeah. Wealth can be very good. can be wonderful. Yeah. If you've got a lot of money, Bill Gates. I'm not one of those people who thinks badly of Bill Gates. I, I, I think uh, the philanthropic pursuits of Bill Gates, I think, are wonderful. I think... Uh, in America, I think um, he's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, philanthropists, and a lot of the work he and his friends do is uh, very impressive. Uh, having money is not always a sign that you're greedy or you're a bad person. I don't know anything about Bill Gates' morals, but but money in itself is not a problem. Uh, having money can be great, but it can't make us secure, and so. Grasping at youth is not it. Grasping at wealth is not it. Grasping at health is not it. That's another thing in our society these days. You know, there's a, the amount of money that's spent on health. Probably several of you are doctors. So, you know, I, uh, I don't know. Somebody's ever done any survey on what percentage of income people spend on their health? Somebody's probably done some statistics on it. We really emphasize health as if it's somehow going to give us security. Ajahn Chah used to say that we will uh, sacrifice everything for our health. That's natural. But he said you have to be willing to sacrifice your health for number. Now, he wasn't saying don't look after your health, but he was saying that actually even grasping your health is not going to secure you. That dhamma is even more important than health. More important than youth, more important than wealth, more important than health. And of course, the other of the four intoxicants the Buddha talked about was beauty. And probably all of you have heard of the Buddha's teachings on the four intoxicants, youth, wealth, health and beauty. He didn't say there's anything wrong with them in themselves. He's just saying that if you're not careful, what happens is you tend to mistake these things for a source of security that makes you feel good and deals with your inner anxiety when in fact it's not really going to deal with it. All it does is intoxicates us. 
youth, wealth, health, beauty. It makes us feel like actually we are immortal, when of course we're not. So on an occasion like this, where we create a beautiful context, remembering Sushila, coming together, making offerings, listening to the same old prittas chanted again in the same place by the same monks, with one or two alterations and additions <laughs> and subtractions, uh, doing it in a regular way like this, uh, bringing this recollection of the inevitability of death into our minds, not because we're morbid, but because in so doing, we're able to avoid creating the f- unnecessary fear of it. Yeah. Death, old age, is inevitable. It's not wrong. Yeah. If we push it into unawareness, well then the conditioned reactions based on preference. You know, We lo- like youth, we like wealth, we like health, we like beauty, we like friendship. We don't want to lose these things. But the truth is that we will lose all of them from the perspective of the conditioned ego. So I'm very happy you keep doing it regularly and look forward to seeing you again. Well, hopefully, not this time next year, we'll see you again before then. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs>